Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Read for All. Julie, what's up? I am so relieved that the kids' birthday parties are over with because I had one on Saturday and one on Sunday, but I'm ready to start the week. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's a busy week. I have a short week, but I'm trying to cram a lot into two days, so a little stressed, but we'll move. Today on the show, we have Brandon Weaver. We're really excited to talk to Brandon. Uh, Brandon, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, glad to be here. So my name is Brandon. I've been engineering for about 11-ish years previously at Square, at Sterner, at PlayStation, a few other places, and currently a principal engineer over at Gusto. And what I'm here to talk about today is a lot about interviewing. And at Square especially, I've done a significant amount of interviews from all the way from interns all the way up to very experienced engineers. So I'd love to talk and kind of explore some of that with all of you today. I'm so yeah. happy to have you on the show, Brandon. I just wanted to share with the listeners how we met and why I wanted to bring you on to talk about interviewing. Uh, about a year ago, I had cold tweeted you because you shared a tweet that Square was hiring. And I don't know how I had the courage to cold tweet you, but I did and you responded and we ended up having a conversation about interviewing. And I really wanted to have you on the show to share all of that knowledge to the rest of our listeners. Brandon, can you please share what a junior dev interview process might look like? Yep. So typically, whenever I see a junior dev or even an intern dev, the processes are fairly similar. What happens is someone will send in a resume and they'll either get a yes or a no from the recruiter. Sometimes they'll have a few more steps that they need to go through, like some type of brief coding exercise or other thing like that. It kind of depends on the company. But a lot of the times, once you get into the company, you will start with one or two technical screens. Now, Back with Square, what happened is they would do two screens, one screen just to kind of get a calibration of should we keep interviewing you in the second screen of should we fly you out to San Francisco because back then pre-COVID, it's very expensive to fly someone and put them up in a hotel, so they want to make sure that this is someone that we want to interview in office and make sure this is an ideal fit for us. So after that, what typically happens would be a number and a mixture, it depends on the company again, of technical interviews, which would be hard coding, and then architectural design interviews, which would be things like talk through your past experience on a project, and then it might also be things such as architecture, like design, say, some sort of restaurant calendar system or a hotel booking or any other number of things. There are a lot of different directions that could go in. And a lot of the idea there is to have multiple people interviewing you so you have a fairly wide amount of information. Someone could do great in a couple of interviews but do poorly in another, and it was up to the final hiring bar to decide whether or not, given that information, they should hire these people. But there are definitely things which stood out to me as far as candidates which were very likely to succeed and candidates which were very likely to have a hard time. I also wanted to share that at Code Academy, I had done a take-home assignment, but I'm curious to know what might be an average length of time someone should spend on a take-home assignment. On take-home assignments, I would say ideally those should be one or two hours. If it's anything longer than two hours, it's going to take a substantial amount of time. 
And I'm almost of the opinion that people should be paid for that because you're effectively asking them to do work, especially for parents or people who have people they need to take care of. That's a huge amount of time commitment to say, hey, in the middle of your week while you're working 40 plus hours, please also do our 15 hour coding assessment because we want to make sure that you're good for us without paying you a dime. And then you're also interviewing with what, five, 10 companies probably at the same time, but if they all want five to 10 hours worth coding assessments, it's untenable, it's not gonna happen. That's a really good point. I probably spent five to 10 hours on mine because I put all my eggs in one basket and wanted to make sure I got, got this job, but that's good to know. The other thing that I wanted to ask is during the technical portion of the interview, is it more like a whiteboarding type of assignment or is it better to have a pair programming type of experience? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So again, this is going to depend on the company as to what they tend to do. I mean, Google's notorious for either having people do a whiteboard or programming Google Docs, which is absolutely not an ideal experience. And the way I look at that is how often are you actually going to be drawing code on a whiteboard? How often are you going to be programming a Google Doc? And the answer is less than a percent of the time with most all jobs. So why in the world would you want to interview someone on something they're never actually going to do in their job? Which I have very similar opinions about leak code problems, which I think are absolutely horrid indicators for how someone's actually going to perform at their job. But people seem to be obsessed with them because they're an easy yes-no metric and some engineers are obsessed with that. For me, I really believe in pair programming interviews of, I want to see how you work as a team. I want to see how you work with people, how you communicate, how you get feedback, how you try and drive decisions, how you make sure that you actually understand the problems and that you have been understood in turn. Those are a lot more valuable to me than I can crank out this massive algorithm or I can write a bubble sort or I could write whatever else. It's like, I want to know if you're going to be a decent person to work with, not that you're going to be a coder. The code can be taught. Being a decent person can't. I really like that a lot. I, I completely agree. I appreciated that Codecademy's interview process was also pair programming. And I honestly felt like I bombed the interview because I couldn't finish answering all the questions, but I work for them now. So they must have liked the way that I worked during the interview. So you bring up an interesting one, which is not finishing all the portions. So one thing in the technical interviews is, for me at least, I'm not looking for someone to complete all the portions. I mean, I could have someone complete two parts of my problem. I could have someone complete 10 parts of my problem. I make up parts after a certain point, by the way. But what I'm looking for is I want to see, for your experience, for you as a person, how you drive the conversation, which parts you choose to make more interesting, because you could spend a huge amount of time on say part one or part two of my problem that I have and end up with some very interesting conversation, which makes me say absolutely yes. And people get worried and they say, well, I didn't finish all the parts of your problem. I want to finish everything. Like, no, no, you finished enough to give me the information I need. And the information I need is not whether or not you've cleared all the kind of capricious points on my bullet point list. It's have you actually given me enough information to say, yes, I would be willing to work with this person. So every question I ask and every point that I try and drive is going to be, are you someone that I would enjoy working with or that I would enjoy having on a team? If I can answer that question definitively, yes, in one or two parts, well, then I say yes. Yeah, I think that's an important point that like people are looking for good coders, obviously, but there's so much more about being a good coder that doesn't have to do with like your ability to write code, right? Your communication skills are a huge one that we talk about a lot. 
your willingness to work with others, your agreeableness, like there's all these other factors and you don't have to be a 10X coder to be able to get a job, right? You just, there are so many other aspects. And when I see people often, they're like, I can't find a job. Um, what do you, what do you suggest? I'm like, well, I mean, it, it appears like you can write Ruby, right? But what about these other things? Like, how are you demonstrating that you can communicate? Are you maybe working on open source? Like, let's like, what about that? So yeah, I, I like that you brought up that point that you don't have to, you might not be able to finish all the problems, but that doesn't disqualify you. And you shouldn't just not turn it in because you didn't complete them all. Yep, and that's why I really like, especially pair interviews where you are working live with someone as opposed to a take home because you can actually have that interaction, that camaraderie and get that experience. But one of the interesting parts, and I know that TDD has been kind of a hot topic in some cases, whether or not people like it or not, for actual programming, I go back and forth depending on the task, but for interviews, I would almost actively encourage it. And here's why. A lot of the conversation early on is I have a problem, like let's say rock, paper, scissors was an old problem I used to ask just because it's very simple and I could use this to build into far more complex conversations. I could say, make me a rock, paper, scissors application. And then someone who's going to do well is going to ask me a whole bunch of questions about that. Like, are there ever going to be more than two players? Are there ever going to be more than three options? How many rounds? What should we do during ties? What should we do in all these other edge cases? What do we do if we get invalid input? And then all these things start becoming kind of your requirements. They start building up what the expectations are. So now you have a shared understanding of what the interview expects. And it goes from being this very kind of abstract notion of I'm just trying to solve the problem. I hope I'm solving it the way they want to I am literally getting them to acknowledge what they want out of this problem. But where TDD comes in is you can say, you've now acknowledged that invalid input should do this. Let me write a test to prove that my program will satisfy this condition. And then as you're going, you can add more tests and say, my program has now fulfilled all your conditions. Is this accurate to what you're expecting? Or should we add something more to make sure that we catch these corner cases? Are there other things I might have missed? And I found that's very, very useful for driving the conversation of these interviews, which is what exactly do you want out of me? because a lot of times the interview doesn't actually know. And that's a fun little secret. Yeah. My like interview horror story, that's kind of exactly what happened. I didn't fully understand what they were asking from me. And though I tried to clarify, I still didn't understand. And I got nervous and ashamed. And I was like, okay, well, I've already asked this person to explain this like two times and I should get this by now. And I did not pass the interview surprisingly right so yeah that's you know asking for clarifying questions and starting maybe with the test so that you really nail down what it's actually supposed to do so you're not just fumbling around trying to write classes and objects when you don't really have a full understanding of what you're trying to accomplish this is super helpful advice and i also want to say that it's super relevant to your job as well i find that i'm coming into problems not really understanding the problem and it's taking me a lot longer to get to a solution because i keep having to go back and i'm realizing oh i missed this step or this isn't what i was looking for in the first place which is amusing because probably 90 percent of problems you come to in a software engineering company are not software engineering problems they're people problems because people have not talked they have not understood each other they're talking over each other's heads they say hey i know how to fix that they go off and do it and then boom no one knows how in the world this thing works they're the only person who understands it they leave the company and then you have a mess so it's almost fitting that interviews 
that people drive these conversations end up being much more productive than interviews, which is I'm just going to go out and write this thing and assume this is what you wanted. It comes down a lot to assumptions is what a lot of it is. But to Andrew's point on getting nervous and everything else, that's another interesting one because good interviewers that actually have your best interests in mind want you to succeed. They're not trying to get you to fail. There are definitely interviewers who will do that. And if you do find one of them, you probably do not want to work for that company because chances are that interviewer has some amount of power because they only really like to allow senior plus developers to do most interviews at a lot of companies. So if you have an experience where the interviewer is absolutely grilling you, lambasting you or putting you aside and kind of criticizing you like that, I would run. I would just say, thank you for your time. I'm done because that's not going to be a good experience for you, especially if they have someone like that as the face of their company because interview is literally your first interaction with that company as a programmer as someone who might be working with them and if your first experience is they treat you like garbage and throw you out to the side well i'd stay the heck away from that but no good interviewer is going to want to see you succeed they're going to see that nervousness they're going to work with you they're going to ask questions they're going to try and guide you back on a track i mean with me i want to see someone succeed i don't like to give failing grades i never want to so whatever I have to do to get them there, I mean, there are still going to be people who are going to struggle enough to where they're not going to get very far after that. But oftentimes I find that as long as you're willing to give them a chance and willing to guide them a little bit, a lot of times they get back on track very quickly and turns out, hey, it's just nerves. And honestly, it happens to all of us, even me. I really like that a lot. And I wanted to tie in accommodations that people may be able to ask for, especially like I don't do very well with having two people interviewing me. And I found out that I could actually request to have a one-on-one -on -one interview, which would certainly help reduce my nerves and perhaps make me perform better and people can see my true self. I'm wondering if there's any accommodations that you've come across where interviewees may be able to ask for that could help them in the interview process. So an interesting fact to start out with, I myself am actually autistic and ADHD, which colors a lot of how I tend to look at things. But what's also interesting is back at Square, I was one of the global chairs through the neurodiversity community. One thing that we did during my tenure there was we worked a lot with recruiting and a lot with advocacy for how do we make interviews more accessible as a default, where the accommodations are listed forefront as an option for people rather than you had to ask them, no, we're going to tell you, you have the option to ask for these things. That way you're aware from the get-go instead of, no, no, you have to go through this and hope that we can somehow accommodate you. But as far as the actual accommodations that frequently I ask for, a lot of times there'll be things like, I want to actually see the question written down. I want the text version of it because my eyes might glaze over. I might not be fully paying attention. I might be solving the problem in my head and miss some critical part of that. I kind of want to see that thing on paper or in the coder pad or whatever in the world else they're using and have that thing written down. That way I can go through and methodically say, yes, I've actually fulfilled all these conditions instead of asking them to repeat themselves a lot because it's kind of like, I might not entirely catch all that stuff and I might already be in problem solving mode and just completely miss parts of it. So things like that, occasionally I'll see things for requesting more time. For having panel things, it feels kind of like an inquisition of you're all trying to take me out or something else like that. And it feels like I am now defending myself against five or six people who are all very potentially actually trying to find reasons to say no to me, which again, a good company should not have that. But it's very easy to get into that mode and start to have almost panic experience on that. That kind of leads us into filtering out companies, right? Because we talk all of the time about like, how do I get a company to like me more? How do I do this? How do, how can I look better? 
but we don't often talk about like what you should be looking for in these interviews, the questions you should be asking to figure out if you're the right fit at that company for like what your personal needs are. Mm-hmm. And they are Along- very, very much two-way conversations. Alongside of that, I also wanted to ask for the junior developers who are currently looking for their first job and struggling because it's hard out there for them. If they do interview with a company that there are some red flags, they may feel like they should take the job because they might not have something else lined up. Do you have any advice for those folks? Yep. And those are really, really hard questions because I don't honestly have good answers for some of that. I mean, as you get more senior, you can definitely be more selective with jobs. You definitely have a lot more options because you have those options. You're allowed to say no more judiciously to a lot of companies which have those red, yellow, or orange flags. The way I look at it sometimes is I have various flag rankings of yellow, orange, and red, where red flag is absolutely not, I need to run away from this. Orange flag is, okay, I'm really wary of this. I'm uncomfortable with this. If there are any other companies, I'm going to do it. Yellow flag is I should pay attention to this, but I'm not actively concerned. And I think a lot of it is kind of being able to scale, okay, how much does this concern me? So there are a lot of contentious subjects like, say, cryptocurrency, your company could be involved in that and you want nothing to do with it. For me, that would be a red flag. For someone else, that might be an orange flag. I'm not going to go into morals and ethics on that, but most people know where I stand. So for me, absolute no. For someone else, maybe not as big a deal. For me, things like I want to make sure people are represented well, like, if the company is staffed by predominantly white men in positions of authority and power, and there's not a shredded diversity anywhere past, say, the senior level, I'm very concerned about that because that means you have a very monoculture. If the teams look similar, same deal. So it's kind of like I have a lot of these calibration metrics, which are how much do I like your company? How safe do I think I'm going to be here? And how safe do I think others are going to be here? Because if I'm in a very senior level, I want to be referring people into these positions and I don't want to bring them into a company where they're going to be discriminated against or feel unsafe or feel like they can't grow and have potential. So for me, I have a very different vantage how I look at it. But for a junior, what I look at is, yes, it's very hard to be picky in some cases. And also, if you have so many interviews that you're just being buried with them all the time, it's kind of like, well, I've just gone through 10 interviews, that's going to wear on you. I mean, there's only so many interviews you can do there. For me, what I've tended to do in the past is I'll find companies which are maybes for my interest level, and I'll rank them kind of on a scale of, say, C all the way up to S rank. S rank is this is my dream job. This is where I eventually want to end up. What I'll do is I'll put a bunch in C rank and say, these are companies I would work at. It wouldn't be my first option, but I would work at them. B rank, which B... I'd be pretty okay with working with these people. They have a decent reputation. A rank, which would be, okay, this is solidly a company I want to land in. I'm actually interested in S rank. is like the top one or two companies that this would be my dream job. And this is my moonshot. This is my all in. I would do anything to go work here. And you also have to be open to the fact that probably you're going to find out this was not the right company for me. And a C rank might actually be an A rank and an A rank might actually be an F rank because he found out something really bad about them. And it's like, no, I'm out. So a lot of times what I do whenever I'm interviewing is I'll take a bunch of C ranks and then I'll try and get interviews with them. That way, by the time I go up to the B, A and S ranks, I have some amount of experience under my belt and I have potentially some offers, which allows me to be more picky, which allows me to have conversations and say, I don't particularly like this assignment or I don't particularly like this team or I don't particularly like the pay or anything else like that. It gives you a lot more room to negotiate instead of being, 
this is my only option. I have to take it even if there are red flags. I want to know how a person would know that a company would be a good fit for them. So how do I ask this question? A lot of it comes down to what you value. And especially with very new engineers, there's always that tagged on segment at the end, which they might write off as, okay, these are just little nicety questions. They'll always ask, are there any questions you have for us? And that's actually probably one of the most critical parts of the interview to find out information about the company. One thing I will do, especially is I'll reach out to any of the people I can circle back in this later because there's a whole other topic on this, but I'll frequently circle back to kind of asking SREs or other operations folks, which have a very, very high level of insight into the company, especially the technical part of how it works as one of the cost centers of the company potentially, because they tend to have much more honest opinions about stuff. But a lot of things that I try and ask are, how is your representation? Do you have LGBTQ employees? Are they represented well? Do you have affinity groups? Do you have support networks? Do you take care of women? Do you have healthcare options? Do you have paternity leave? How do parents end up being involved? How would someone with a neurodiverse condition be treated at this company? Do you allow people to speak at conferences to be involved in public policy? How do you engage with political events as they happen? And how exactly would you react to say, insert event which happened in the last couple of weeks here? whether that be any of the Black Lives Matter stuff or it happened to be any other political leaning, I like to find out how would your company deal with them. A good company sets aside time and places for people to talk about that, to acknowledge that you're all not in a good place right now. We should make sure that we get you back there and that you're allowed to be vulnerable, allowed to be in a bad place and you're safe here. Versus another company which might say, there are no politics at work, absolutely not. You'll keep all that at home and keep it the heck out of here. I don't trust those companies very often because a lot of second order effects come out of that type of mentality, which are, well, what if my entire identity is political? What if the fact that I happen to be autistic is political? What if the fact that one of my coworkers happens to be Black or Asian or something else happens to be political? What if the person being trans is political? All of a sudden, that becomes a very, very negative environment. So I really, really dislike companies which say no politics whatsoever because it feels like a precursor to so many worse things. But you might think, well, these aren't technical questions. I want to know about their tech stack. I want to know about all these other things. What I find is the tech stack comes and goes. It changes. Sure, you might like to work in Ruby or Postgres or something else like that, yes, but inevitably you want a company where you're safe to grow and safe to expand and become who you are, not a company where you agree to the tech stack, but end up in a horrible situation where it causes you mental anguish and you end up on depression medication because you have such anxiety about going back to your job and you feel so horrible about it. So for me, the sociopolitical questions and how they treat especially underrepresented people is critically important to how I view a company. Yeah, I think those are all great to hit on. The only other one I want to add is like, how do you mentor juniors? What's my growth path look like? How, how, what does success look like here? Um, how do you measure that? You know, all those other sorts of things. Like, how, like, it's great to know how you're being judged and graded before going into it because they're like, oh, yeah, we count your lines of code. Well, then <laughs> I'm out. Right. So, there are a few, like some of those, in addition to what Brandon said, there's a few additional ones of like how you're going to be judged, what your growth path looks like that you can also ask as well that I think are important. Yep. And those are great points. I love that you went there because that's also one of the things 
is how many underrepresented people are at higher levels. So, you know, is there a glass ceiling at this company? Do you only promote people who happen to look and think like you? Is this a monoculture in leadership, which means that I will not actually be able to succeed as soon as I go to higher levels? In a lot of growth paths, there are a huge amount of companies which do not actually have engineering levels, do not have growth paths, are not good about promotions. Managers don't really invest in that. And there are companies which have these very detailed, elaborate paths and everything which are set up with great mentorship programs that are very good for it. So you also want to know, am I going to grow here and am I safe here? If you can answer those two questions well, and you can also answer that I'm also being compensated fairly for my time great, that's probably a good company to put in your top tier and say, yes, I am interested in this place. I feel like juniors may feel like if they do ask some of these questions, then the company might not accept them for whatever reason. Do you find that there's ample time at the end for people to ask their questions? And would they be biased for asking certain questions? It's going to very heavily depend on the company. If I was in a different state, for instance, in California, there's a very good chance that people could take questions, especially regarding underrepresented minorities, negatively, which I very much disagree with, and that would put them in the red flag for me, which is the fact that I asked a question about how you take care of people, all of a sudden triggered you into, I don't want to hire you. It's like, great, then that's probably a mutual feeling. But again, I'm allowed to be picky because of the position I'm in. So there is a certain amount of how much can you ask these things and how much can you safely do. And I think it really depends on kind of the state, the locale, the companies, and everything else around you. And I really hate to say it because I'd love to say, yes, you should just turn down every company, which is not morally pure and unambiguously good. There's no such thing. What I also do is I tend to rate companies on kind of a moral scale of how much do I trust them to do the right thing? How much do they engage well with society? How much do they go into negative things? Like say a company like Palantir is clearly on the full left side of absolutely never not a chance this is ever going to happen because morally they're absolutely bankrupt and they do horrible, horrible things without questioning the ethics of any of it. So that is in the complete wrong bracket. Whereas you would have various other companies which may make some morally great decisions, but you can agree with them partially on those things. And I wish there was a world where we could say that unambiguously, yes, these are all good companies which do good things, but I don't think we live in that world. So it's what do we do with the system we're given to try and make the best decision we can. Yeah, I totally agree. It would be great to say like, no, you shouldn't have to hold back, but you know, sometimes you might have to. And like, again, you have to judge that based on where you are, what the company's like, but it can be like a big red flag if they're like, if you're asking about underrepresented people in the company and then they start getting, you know, angry or like noticeably frustrated about that, like that's a, a red flag. But like Brandon's also hitting on is that we're seniors, we have that uh, flexibility and more like leniency. But if you're a junior and you've been searching for a job for six months and like the only company that's interested is like this morally bankrupt company, like you're kind of in a hard position. Yeah, and those are really hard because sometimes it's you have to put food on the table, you have to find something, you have to have work, 
And I hate those situations because that means that there's so many good companies which could have been there, which could have been supportive, but they're not hiring. And that gets into an entirely different thing, which is I believe companies are so, so horribly focused on hiring senior engineers that they do not create junior opportunities, even though juniors are critical to the growth of a company and critical to actually scaling out your infrastructure. So it's kind of like the fact that a junior has to actually make that decision is a moral failing of all these companies, which will not hire juniors to near enough of a degree to make it to where those companies are actually the only option. And that's very frustrating for me that we end up in this position, but I can't truthfully judge someone for having to take some of those positions because at the end of the day, you do have to earn something and you do have to survive in this world. I mean, I'd prefer that we had a nice, pure system where everything goes exactly as planned, but sometimes it's all system compromises and how much can you compromise before it kind of violates who you are as a person. And that's the line I look for a lot of times. You bring up a great point, and I wanted to share also at Code Academy, I felt like I belonged because I was one of six apprentices at the time. This was a year ago. And when we joined, we were also paired up with a mentor and a buddy. So I felt like I was set up for success. And it, it would be great if more companies were able to do this, where they could hire at least a junior. It's better if they could hire two so they would have a pair that could talk to each other because I having that group of apprentices, we all didn't really know what we were getting into. It was really helpful to have conversations with them. Uh, but also having that mentor was really integral to my success at Code Academy. Yep. And you bring up something interesting. It's kind of going into the expectations of what makes a junior engineer and what makes them successful. I had this conversation recently with my wife who's looking into some more junior development positions around educational technology. And the expectation she had as a second career person coming in from teaching were I need to be self-sufficient. I should not ask questions. I should be able to deliver on my own and confidently debug everything. I'm like, no, 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 no. That is very, very senior. The level of autonomy and execution ability that you're describing is something that I would expect from a senior developer. A junior developer, literally we're hiring you expecting you need onboarding, expecting that you're going to ask questions, expecting you're not entirely going to know what's going on, which to be fair, the secret is that no one actually knows what's going on half the time we're making it up. We just hope that no one catches us, but that's a different story. A lot of it comes down to juniors are expected to be in a learning mode for especially the first couple of months and then even in past that. So entry level, which is kind of your first step right outside of college or right into the entry level jobs, is going to be, you're going to need a high amount of guidance, a high amount of handholding, and a high amount of ability to receive feedback. But conversely, it also means senior engineers need to invest in you, need to mentor, need to grow you, because senior engineers can grow too. And most of their growth paths beyond senior are going to be related directly to mentoring, to communication, to making things understandable, to making the code more understandable. Because if you get senior but more technical all of a sudden everything you write is going to be extremely confusing and hard to understand for anyone but if instead you're forced to be accountable to a lot of newer engineers who are coming in then all of a sudden you're held to an account of none of this is understandable and you actually have those conversations which helps the senior engineer grow as well so it's something and that's the reason why i say juniors are so critical is because if you don't have them, the seniors are going to go technical but harder and treat that as a staff and principal pact, which is an extreme mistake and going to be very toxic to the company later. And they'll say, well, we move faster. Yes, you move faster, but in the wrong direction, flying right off the side of a cliff. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Yeah, 
I'm, we're about at time. Is there any other kind of concluding thoughts you want to add before we take this boat home? Yeah, I think a lot of things are you need to be able to reach out to people as well. I mean, reach out to someone on Twitter. Even if you think they're completely someone you can't talk to yet, reach out to them, ask questions, see what happens. Because a lot of times, especially for more senior engineers, we have an entire network. And the joke is we're always doing this job flirting with each other. Of, oh, hey, you could always come work at Gusto. Well, no, no, I'm over at Square. But hey, if you ever want a job, you can come over here. That's actually how I ended up at Gusto, by the way. But so many of post-senior and especially senior or above positions are going to be completely network-based. That applies to juniors as well. And that can be your foot in the door to get you into some of these very interesting positions. So if you have a company you like, reach out to one of the developers on Twitter or somewhere else and say, hey, I'd like to talk. You might not get a response, but hey, you might get a response. The worst they can do is say no. So you might as well take that chance and see what happens. 100%. Brandon, thank you so much. Plug what you want to plug. Tell people where they can find you online. Yep, yep. You can find me on Twitter at Keystone Lemur. And if you're looking to level up in Ruby, we also have rubylearning.dev, which is just started up. We're going through Rebuilding Rails by Noah Gibbs and having a lot of fun with that experience. And we have an entire Discord community where we're actually teaching people Ruby, Rails, and other related materials. So if you do want to learn or chat with me, feel free to reach out to me there on Twitter or anywhere else. That will all be in the show notes. And I'll also add your blog post about interviewing in the show notes as well. Sounds good. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. I'm sure we could have you on for another one in the future to run through the stuff that we didn't get to. Yep. Anytime. Just let me know. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Yep. Thank you. And to the listeners, we will see you next week. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.